0: This is the Bible Book Club. I'm Heather. And I'm Susan. And we're in the book of 1 Samuel. Welcome to the club. In the last episode, we began what theologians call the Ark narrative. The narrative starts in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel and it ends in chapter 7. It is the story of the Philistines' victory over Israel and their possession of the Ark of the Covenant. This was spiritually and politically devastating, and it was just a very dark time in Israel's history. The defeat sent a message to Israel that God would not be with them if they continued to break the covenant of their relationship, and there would be consequences if they forgot his laws or tried to manipulate God to suit their needs, which is what they had been doing. One of those Consequences was a swift end to the line of Eli. Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas had abused their positions as priests and they were all killed. At the same time, God sent a strong message to the Philistines that they might defeat Israel, but that didn't mean that they had defeated God. To prove it, God sent the ark on a tour of terror through Philistia. Okay, so
1: set up for today. When we open in chapter six, the Israelites have lost the ark and are suffering without the presence of God. While the Philistines have gained the ark, but they too are suffering with the presence of God. Samuel is nowhere to be seen yet. So here's scene one, the ark is not a keeper that any of the Philistines want to add to their trophy room. The question is,
0: how does one get rid of a god without making him angry? Let's find out in chapter 6. When the Ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory seven months, the Philistines called for the priest and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the Ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. They answered, If you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it back to him without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. The Philistines asked, What guilt offering should we send him? They replied, Five gold tumors and five gold rats, according to the number of the Philistine rulers, because the same plague had struck both you and your rulers. Make models of the tumors. And of the rats that are destroying the country and give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did? When Israel's God dealt harshly with them, did they not send the Israelites out so they could go on their way? So we have more irony here because it's the Philistines
1: who remember more about God's conquest for Israel than Israel remembers. The Philistines recall what happened in Egypt and they apply a golden lesson from the mistakes of Pharaoh to their current situation. The Philistine priests recommend that they placate the God of Israel rather than hardening their hearts and causing more suffering like plagues that Egypt had when Pharaoh hardened his heart. The whole event as parallels to the Exodus, if only Israel could see it. So for example, the ark farewell parade with the cows the cart and the Philistines watching, we're going to get to this in a minute we haven't read it yet, watching and hope that their departure will bring them relief so we're going to see that they're going to send the ark off with these cows and the Philistines are going to kind of follow behind like, okay is this the end of the plague? It it, it mirrors a procession reminiscent of the exodus when the Israelites left with the Egyptians watching and hoping for relief from the plagues you tracking with me Heather? Mm -hmm. Okay However, in the Exodus, God came out of Egypt with his people. And here, God comes out of Philistia alone, without his people, which is a really sad picture of the relationship between God and the Israelites at this time. Then also in the Exodus, God liberated his people from bondage. In this incident, God has to liberate himself from bondage. So comparison, but it's not looking good for the Israelites. Now, what is this Philistine gold guilt offering? And how is it to appease God for taking his ark? And why five gold tumors and five gold rats? How do you even make a gold tumor? Is it just like a blob of gold? I I have have no idea. Probably. So there was a lot of interesting debate about this combination of gold objects in all the uh, commentaries. It is thought that God may have struck the Philistines as the Ark went around on that tour of terror with what sounds like the bubonic plague. Now, the plague caused obvious swelling of the limb. Lymph nodes, which would have looked like tumors. Remember, very early medicine here. They don't know what this Mm -hmm. is, but lymph nodes are in different places in your body. And so these lumps formed. The fact that the Philistines combined their offering of five gold tumors with five gold rats suggests that they might have recognized the rat's involvement in spreading the outbreak. If so, the Philistines were way ahead of the times because it wasn't until 1894, thousands of years later, that Alexandre Yersin, a Swiss-French bacteriologist, identified the exact cause of bubonic plagues. It was a bacteria carried by rats and transmitted by their fleas. How could the Philistines have made such an insightful observation. We don't know, but smart cookies. And that's
0: why, of course, they remembered the whole thing that went down in Egypt The Israelites keep forgetting. Continuing on in verse seven. Now then, get a new cart ready with two cows that have calved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart and in a chest beside it, put the gold objects that you're sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory toward Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us, but that it happened to us by chance. So this is kind
1: of a clever test. This cow test was a way of erasing uncertainty in the absence of science. So think about it. The Philistines were still unsure as to whether the onset of the plague was really tied to the god of Of the ark. So they created a test to prove that returning the ark was the right thing to do. They took cows who had just had calves and were nursing. These were cows who had never been trained or yoked to a cart, so they wouldn't necessarily know what to do when they were hooked up to a cart. So they hooked the cows up to the cart and they watched. Would, when released, would these cows naturally respond to the cries of their unweaned calves and go to them? Or if they didn't go to the calves, it would be unnatural. And, the, and if they started heading down the road to Israel, then the Philistines would know that it was the hand of God guiding the cows to deliver the ark to Israel.
0: Verse 10. So they did this. They took two such cows and hitched them to the cart and penned up their calves. They placed the ark of the Lord on the cart and along with it, the chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumors. Then the cows went straight up toward Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh.
1: So this whole scene kind of is humorous to me because I'm just picturing these like big five, you know, Philistine rulers come in to the edge of the border and buying these two cows from farmers who are just shaking their head like, what are you going to do? You're going to... What, what are these gold things? These tumors? You're just going to put them in, Can I have one? You know, like they're solid gold. Apparently this is a lot of gold. So watching from a distance as the cart crossed the border for what? Like they're all just standing there. Did they give a sigh of relief? Did they have confidence that this would stop the plague? Were they hoping the Israelites would get the plague when they sent the ark over the border? I really don't know what they were thinking. It seems very hocus pocus. And I'm thinking the very practical farmer was just shaking his head and like, are you going to pay me for those cows you Just sun over the border because it doesn't look like they're coming back.
0: Yeah. And it's ironic because they're obviously very smart since they could figure out that science you were talking about, knowing that the plague came from the rats. But yet we still have this very superstitious behavior. But it worked. And so that's the
1: point. It worked. God worked with it. The cows took the ark home. So they did rely on God, just like Gideon did way back, you know, in Judges for visible signs from God. Um, We just go to Google is our problem. Really <laughs> what, yeah, exactly. One thing the Philistines knew for certainty, it was a golden lesson that cost them many lives and a lot of gold. The Israelites, they could defeat. The God of the Israelites, they could not. All right. Scene two, Ark Handling 101. What to do if the Ark appears in your field? Now, the only right answer to this this statement is you call the high priest. So if that ever happens to you, if an ark appears in your yard, don't touch it. Now we know. (laughs) Unfortunately for the people of Beth Shemesh, they did not know. They called the Levites. Not the same thing. We have discussed this several times in other lessons. Every priest is a Levite. Not every Levite is a priest. The priests were from the direct line of Aaron. If you want to handle the ark, you better know the rules or you may die. The people of Beth Shemesh had no excuse. They should have known every single rule well. Beth Shemesh was a Levitical city set aside for the clan of Kohath. Now the Kohathites were the Levitical family charged with caring for the Ark. You can go way back to Exodus. And I think it was numbers maybe where Moses gave the rules for what each family of the Levite tribes would do. And the Kothites were one of the top families. They were responsible for unpacking. Remember at that time, the tabernacle moved a couple times throughout the desert and the wilderness. And they were responsible for packing up the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was and the coverings and all that. Which was a really big job. It was was a a really complicated, very heavy stuff, a lot of parts. A lot of parts. And they couldn't touch any of it. Like they had to cover it with cloths first. There were all these rules. Check out season four, the book of Numbers for. chapter chapter four for more on that. Beth Shemesh was also the city designated as a home for the descendants of Aaron. So you've got descendants of Aaron living there, the priesthood, and you have Levites, you have both. So even though Eli, the high priest and his sons had just died, so they really couldn't technically call the high priest, there was probably second, somebody second in line, somebody there should have known the rules and
0: they could have just covered the ark, but they didn't. Verse 13 Now the people of Bethshemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley and when they looked up and saw the ark they rejoiced at the sight The cart came to the field of Joshua of Bethshemesh and there it stopped beside a large rock the people chopped up the wood of the cart and sacrificed cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the Ark of the Lord together with the chest containing the gold objects and placed them on the large rock. On that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. The five rulers of the Philistines saw all this and then returned that same day to Ekron. These are the gold tumors the Philistines sent as a guilt offering to the Lord, one each for Ashdod, God. Ashkelon, Gath, and Hikron. And the number of the gold rats was according to the number of the Philistine towns belonging to the five rulers, the fortified towns with their country villages. The large rock on which the Levites set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Bethshemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the people of Bethshemesh asked, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? So the Israelites are perplexed. Why did God return the ark to them and
1: then kill them? They're Israelites, not Philistines. If they can't have access to the ark, the Holy Spirit seat of God, who can? Well, the only right answer is only those whose sin has been atoned for can be in the presence of God. How does that happen? Well, back then, sin was atoned for through sacrifice. So only the high priest who had been purified could offer atonement once a year on the day of atonement in the presence of God at the Ark of the Covenant. Again, go back to prior seasons. We went into this. Aren't you glad we have Jesus? Exactly. And that's the point. Today, we are justified or made pure by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He is our high priest. He was our perfect atonement. If we were to ask the same question today, so who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? The answer is we can through the gift of Christ's redemption. The poor Israelites did not have the gift of Christ. So they had to wait for the high priest.
0: Verse 21. Then they sent messengers to the people of Jarim, saying, The Philistines have returned the Ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your town. All right, what rules did the
1: Israelites break? First, they sacrificed cows. Leviticus 1, season 3 of Bible Book Club lays out the rules for burnt offerings, and the first thing it says is it must be a bull, never a cow. Second, they parade the ark around and display it for all to see. According to the Torah in Numbers 4, Season 4, no Israelites except those in the Arianic priesthood were permitted to see even the exterior of the ark, much less the interior. Even the Kohathites, whose duty it was to care and transport the ark, were forbidden to touch or view the box. In fact, their first duty would have been to hide the ark from view by covering it without touching it, not to parade it around for everyone to see. Lastly, they look inside the ark. In the same passage in Numbers, it specifies that only the high priest and his sons can transport the ark, let alone touch it. Judgment came quickly. Whether you were a Philistine or an Israelite, It is now very clear to all that the ark was dangerous business. God was sending a clear message to the Israelites. I am not yours. You are mine. They cannot manipulate or control God. No one can. And they cannot take his law and his rules lightly. The Philistines may be a real threat to Israel, but losing God's favor is a far greater threat to the Israelites.
0: Scene three, Samuel to the rescue. Finally, he's back. Chapter seven. So the men of Kadith Jarim came and took up the Ark of the Lord. They brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the Ark of the Lord. The Ark remained in Kadith Jarim a long time, 20 years in all. The people of Beth Shemesh
1: deal with the Ark the same way the Philistines did. They hot potato it to another town. Now, in the town of Kirath Jerim, the Ark stayed, presumably without the destroyed tabernacle or tent of meeting to house it. Nothing much is known about Abinadab of Kiriath, Jerim, or his son Eleazar. However, Eleazar is a common priestly name, so we can assume he was from the priesthood probably. Whoever they are, they did not die, so they must have known the Ark rules. This was the end of Shiloh as the center for worship. Samuel had grown up at Shiloh, but God had allowed the Philistines to destroy it. Why? Because it was already desecrated by Eli and his son's wicked behavior. Centuries later, Jeremiah threatens the people that what was done at Shiloh will happen again to the temple in Jeremiah 7.12
0: which says this, Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your ancestors.
1: Often in the Bible, history repeats itself because the Bible is a history book, but it is also a rich lesson plan for life. It's so easy to read about the Israelites' repetitive mistakes throughout history and scoff at them for being obtuse. Yet wisdom, or Solomon, would tell us in Ecclesiastes 1.9 this.
0: What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. There is nothing new under the sun. Mistakes made are repeated and lessons learned
1: are forgotten. History is our only hope to learn God's principles without experiencing the consequences of sinning ourselves. We must try to learn from those who have gone before us. These Bible stories are here for a reason, and that is why Bible book club is so crucial. If we do not know the mistakes that others have made
0: in following God's plan, how can we follow his lesson plan for life? Continuing in chapter 7, verse 2, then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourself of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So, the Israelites put away their baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. I
1: don't know if Hannah is still alive at this point, but I hope she is because Samuel is reintroduced in our story and this is his time. He is now the leader at Mizpah. His first action points the Israelites straight back to a right relationship with God. He actually turns the event into a revival. His message is clear true repentance is not just words, it is also actions. The Israelites must get rid of all idols and ashtrays, which that was Canaanites, goddess of fertility. Then they must commit to the Lord with all their heart. Now this is something that should be familiar to us because the first and greatest commandment is love the Lord your God. And in Deuteronomy 6, 4, it was a commandment for the Old Testament Israelites.
0: Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the doorframes of your houses and on your gates.
1: And for us New Testament believers, Matthew
0: twenty-two thirty-four says this. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So Old Testament,
1: New Testament, it doesn't matter. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart is something you're supposed to do. So get rid of the idols. Love the Lord with all your heart. And then the last thing Samuel calls them to is to serve God only. And the word serve here, it really implies worship, which points back to the first and second commandments Moses wrote on those tablets that are In the Ark of the Covenant. And this is Exodus 20.
0: Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments.
1: Samuel's revival message was simple. It was nothing they haven't heard before. God keeps telling them the same thing. Get rid of the idols, commit to me with all your heart, and worship. And they just don't seem to remember. But scene four, Samuel is going to lead the way with prayer and repentance.
0: Back to 1 Samuel chapter 7 in verse 5. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was serving as leader of Israel at Mizpah. So Samuel leads the
1: Israelites in a corporate act of worship where there is prayer, fasting, and a confession of sin. The pouring of water is thought to symbolize the washing away of corporate guilt, and we really haven't ever read about that before. The Israelites repent. We tend to think of repentance as only remorse for doing something wrong, but repentance is so much more. It is not just turning away from sin. It is an obvious turning toward God. So it's really two things in one. This is the first of three scenes in the books of Samuel where individuals make the statement, I or we have sinned. So the first one is this scene where Samuel leads Israel in a genuine repentance from sin. In chapter 15, Saul, in contrast to this first scene, makes a disingenuous repentance as an example for us. And then in 2 Samuel 12, David makes a genuine confession of sin and repentance in the whole Bathsheba incident. Now, the three scenes together make a point about the importance of repentance recovery. We all sin, but not all recover. Only those who repent are reunited in a right relationship with God. God. As believers, we will struggle to be useful to God without turning back to him in repentance. It doesn't mean he can't use us. It doesn't mean we're not saved. It just means it most likely will not be the way that finds favor with him. And again, we can't be at our best, highest use for him unless we do have a right relationship with him. Well, the Israelites are finally on the right track for the first time since Moses and Joshua died, they have a leader spiritually strong enough to unite them. And remember, Samuel is that last judge, even though he's not part of the book of Judges, he's the very last judge. And praise the Lord, we finally got one that's worth something 100%. (laughs) All right, scene five, we have round two, but the Philistines don't stand a chance because this time
0: God is with the Israelites. Verse 7. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. All right, so last time, I remember, they left God out of the picture. At
1: this time, the Israelites do the right thing when they realize that the Philistines are attacking. They
0: pray, and they apply to Samuel to intercede on their behalf with God. Verse 10, while Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day, the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mispah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So I really do hope that Hannah was alive at this time because she prophesied in
1: episode 2, 1 Samuel chapter 2, 9, Hannah prophesied in her song.
0: It said this, It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The most high will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. So in this case, they're not the stronger they're being attacked,
1: but the Lord thunders from heaven. And without the Israelites lifting a finger, the Philistines are routed just like at Jericho, which they have come full circle because This Philistine debacle started with a battle in chapter four, and the Israelites went into that first battle without prayer. Then they tried to recover from their loss of that first battle by marching into battle again with the Ark, kind of mimicking Jericho, but it didn't work. They lost because they were mimicking something without including God. Now they have turned back to the Lord and voila, he does all the work for them. He thunders from heaven. Samuel marks the miracle of their deliverance with a landmark and calls it Ebenezer. Now, Ebenezer was the site of Israel's defeat in chapter four. It's now the site of Israel's victory. Ebenezer means stone of help, or as Samuel interprets, thus far the Lord has helped us. He's so humble. that Samuel. The phrase, raise my Ebenezer, may be familiar to you. This is where it came from. This verse right here. It's used in several hymns, but most notably the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. In the stanza, it says, Here Here I I
0: raise my Ebenezer, thereby thy great help I've come. And I hope by thy good pleasure safely to
1: arrive at home. Oh my gosh. So now you all know if you listen to Ruth, um, the Ruth uh, Advent series that Buck, our producer, can sing and Heather, my co-host, can sing. Do not expect this from me. It's not. I am the odd man out at this table. All right. The cross is our Ebenezer. So what they're singing of in Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing is here I raise my Ebenezer. It is a cross that we raise and say, thus far the Lord has helped me. Our Ebenezer stones are those singular moments when God touches us with His grace. They are critical, saving turning points that become our metaphorical Ebenezer stone. And over time, if you have these little little miracles of grace and you save these Ebenezer stones, they will accumulate and surround you with a wall of faith that cannot fall and protects you from the enemy's attack. Does that make sense? We've talked about for the Israelites setting up these monuments or remembrances to remind them of what God's done in their life. And that's what our Ebenezer is. It's something we raise up and say, oh, yeah, this is the time God did this in my life. Um, all right, scene six is a summary of Samuel's overall career. We're not done with him, so I don't think we are. It kind of sounds like we do from this, this little section, but we're gonna have lots more of him, but this is a summary.
0: Verse 13, so the Philistines were subdued and they stopped invading Israel's territory. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns of Ikron and Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to Israel and Israel delivered the neighboring territory from the hands of the Philistines and there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all those places but he always went back to Ramah where his home was and there he also held court for Israel and he built an altar there to the Lord so the chapter closes in a way that ties it back to the book of Judges season 7
1: of Bible Book Club and remember in Judges the 12 judges that we discussed in season 7 followed this repetitive cycle First, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Then the Israelites would suffer judgment, usually through their enemies. Then the Lord would raise up a judge to deliver them. And then peace would follow until the judge died. So First Samuel chapters 4 through 7 follow the same cycle. The Israelites and their priests, Eli and his sons, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They suffered judgment at the hands of the Philistines. And God raised up Samuel to deliver them from sin and lead them back to God. And now they're going to have peace. Samuel continues as Israel's judge all the days of his life. And there was peace. But during that time, Israel wanted something new. And political change is in the wind in our next episode.
0: What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible book club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, welcome Welcome to to the the club." club.